Turn with me, please, this morning to Acts chapter 6 in your New Testament scriptures. Acts chapter 6, and we'll read the first seven verses for our consideration this morning. Acts chapter 6. Thankful that we have the privilege today of doing another ordination and installation of a deacon. I have Graham with us, his parents as well, so a happy occasion, an occasion of the whole church to appoint, to select, and now for your elders to uh, install and ordain one of the servants in the church. So Acts chapter 6, let me read verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you and who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, again, we acknowledge that without you, we can do nothing. And we come to you in the name of the Son and by the power, the access of the Holy Spirit. So thank you for access to your presence, a throne of grace where we can come for help in our time of need. And so I pray today as the word is read and preached, it would meet the needs we have, and that we would, through the word, come to worship and serve you. And give us your help during this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 12, verse 37, contains a somewhat shocking promise. It still surprises me when I read it. We read there, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Now, that verse comes from a parable where Jesus describes how his servants should live while they wait for their master to return. And the promise is that those who humbly and faithfully serve Jesus, they themselves will be served by Jesus when he returns. So Jesus, the Lord and Master of the universe, who already served us, even unto death, again, serves his people when he returns. Well, today we will ordain and install another deacon in our church. And the very word deacon means servant. But why does God give us deacons? Well, according to our book of church order, the office is one of sympathy and service, After the example of the Lord Jesus, 
It expresses also the communion of saints, especially in their helping one another in time of need. Essentially, God gives us deacons to model Jesus' service. He himself is a servant to his people, an amazing, gracious promise, and gives us deacons who will model that service. And they'll do it by helping us live out this shared life of the Christian community. And in order to see that, in order to see that that arises from the Bible, we'll give our attention this morning to this passage in Acts. Many consider this passage to record the ordination of the first deacons in the Christian church. And we'll try to prove that as we go through the passage. So if you think back to last fall, Ephesians 4 that we looked at there, how King Jesus gives gifts and those gifts build up his church. Well, we have a similar passage here. Through deacons, Jesus serves his church. And so let's make our way through this story today to see how God serves his people through deacons. And the outline is very simple. It's a a narrative, a story. So you have the problem and the solution and the servants. So let's begin there with the problem. The book of Acts begins with Jesus ascending into heaven. And he pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the church explodes onto the scene. You have 3,000 saved in one day. And then through the ministry of Peter and the other apostles, more and more are being added to the church daily. We're up to 5,000 by the time we come to Acts 4. And chapter 5 ends with the comment, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, the apostles never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So you have a growing church and an active apostolic ministry. They never stop the ministry of the word. And our story takes place in those days. And I think we would all agree this kind of growth is good. That's a healthy church. But interestingly, good growth brought to light a genuine problem. We read it there in the second half of verse 1. The Hellenistic Jews among them, among the disciples, among the believers, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So at some point in the early church, a daily distribution of food, giving food to widows, had been organized by the church. We read in Acts 4, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So occasionally, these large financial gifts came to the church. You might remember Ananias and Sapphira. That's how they got in trouble, by lying about their gift. And the apostles would take those gifts and they would distribute the funds to those in need. And part of that involved food for the widows in the church. 
You see, in the ancient Near East, widows were some of the most vulnerable, most needy people, both economically and socially. It wasn't like our world. It was it was very difficult for them to find economic opportunity. They couldn't just go out and get another job or, or wait for some kind of social or societal aid. They had very little opportunity there. They controlled very little property. And so widows were especially dependent. Upon the care of others. That's why scripture, even in the Old Testament, gives so much attention to caring for the widows and the fatherless and those strangers who are among you, the the particularly vulnerable. And we see the church responding to that need. And in fact, doing it so well that Luke could say there were no needy persons among them. But now a problem has arisen in the way the food is being administered. The Hellenistic Jewish widows are being overlooked in favor of the Hebraic Jewish widows. And who are these two groups? Well, the Hellenistic Jews, those are Jewish Christians who speak only Greek. They had to a greater or lesser extent adopted Greek thought or Greek customs or a Greek lifestyle and and the Greek language, a group that arose during the dispersion. Remember, Judah was exiled away from their homeland and they came back in, in different waves. And so many Jews had taken on some of the Greek customs, learned their language, but then eventually made their way back home, and we see some of them residing here in Jerusalem. And that is the group that's being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The other group would be your ordinary from Jerusalem, Aramaic-speaking Jewish widows, again, now Christians because they're in the church. Well, why were the Hellenistic Jews, uh, these Jewish Christian widows, why were they being ignored? Well, the text never tells us directly. It just says this complaint arose. I think we could identify two factors, though, that may have contributed. First, quite simply, they were different. They were Hellenistic. They were Greek widows as opposed, or or following a Greek lifestyle as opposed to the Hebraic Jewish widows. They were different. They were outsiders. They were a minority culture. They're, they're, they have a Greek lifestyle, but they live in Jerusalem. They're Jews, but different from some of the other Jews. They spoke a different language, had different ways. And so whether the neglect was intentional or not, the smaller group went unnoticed as the church grew. It's easy sometimes to, to miss the needs of those who are different. Again, it may even be an unintentional, but, but we might just screen them out because we all have our blind spots. And sometimes when there's differences, we, we just overlook them without realizing it. And second, there may have been theological suspicions. So what is one of the biggest problems In the early church, according to the book of Acts, how do we assimilate Gentiles into the church? Now, the widows aren't Gentiles. They're Greek-speaking Jews. So it's not exactly that problem. But they probably shared, as I've already said, certain 
customs with Gentiles. And so again, viewing them not only as different, viewing them not only as outsiders, but hey, what kind of things do they believe? What kind of things do they practice? Are they really a part of us? And so because of that suspicion, again, unintentional or not, those widows were being ignored in the distribution of food. Again, it's very easy to withhold charity when you don't trust a person, when you're suspicious of what, where's this going to go? How's it going to work out? Now again, the motive isn't directly stated. So whatever the motive is, what we do know is the neglect of that group caused a division in the church. So notice again verse 1. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. The two parties are becoming antagonistic towards one another, starting to butt heads with each other, get irritated with one another. The Hebraic Christians are benefiting from partial treatment, favoritism, like we saw there in the book of James. And these Hellenistic Christians, well, they're frustrated. Frustrated to the point of complaint and possible division. And I know it's tempting to read this story and say, well, ah, they complained. They made it worse. That's where we need to focus on. That's the problem. Why didn't they trust God to meet this need? Well, interestingly, the apostles never rebuked them for their complaint. That isn't a part of the record. And so it is not wrong to point out a legitimate need in the right way. And whether or not they even did it exactly that way isn't told us. But the apostles don't respond with a rebuke. Well, how do the apostles respond? I mean, they are the ones in charge of the distribution of foods. It makes sense that the church would look to them to provide a solution. But interestingly, their first response really only heightens the tension. Because they say, we can't meet this need. Look at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. If the apostles devote themselves to solving this problem, if they say we'll take on that responsibility, they will not be able to accomplish their ministry of prayer and preaching. Now, I don't know about you, but, but when I first read the apostles' response, it was tempting to me to think, wow, they think they're too good for that kind of ministry. Hey, we're not going to leave the ministry of the word and wait on tables. Or we're not going to go get our hands dirty with serving the needy. We have to go pray and read the Bible. It might be tempting to hear that, but I don't think that's what they're saying. And here's why. Again, what we read in Acts 4, the apostles are the ones receiving the financial gifts and distributing them to those in need. The apostles have been overseeing mercy ministry, and they've done a good job of that. They've done all that while preaching the gospel and praying for the people. What did we read? Tirelessly, day by day. They didn't stop doing that ministry of the word. But now as the church has grown and as this need has arisen that they haven't met, they realize, okay, we can no longer do both. 
It would be wrong to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. That would go against the great commission that Jesus gave to them. Disciple the nations. Teach them to obey all the things that I have taught you. But they are genuinely recognizing it would also be wrong to drop mercy ministries. That would go against a major aspect of Jesus' ministry, his relief of people's physical burdens and sufferings, which weren't just a means to an end. I'll do these nice things, then you know I'm God and you believe in me. It all went together as the Lord entered a sin-cursed world to meet the ultimate need, sin, and also to relieve people of some of the burdens that result from living in a cursed world. That's a major theme of the Bible. For example, Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So the care for the poor and needy among God's people is a major emphasis of the Old and New Testament. So that's the problem. How are we going to do both? And that's where the solution emerges. What do the apostles do? They create a new group of people. Another ministry in the church, as I'll argue in a minute, another office in the church. And this office will oversee the distribution of food. Look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. And that's why as Presbyterians we have the congregation Elect these men. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. They instruct the congregation. Elect qualified men who will oversee the distribution of food with the goal that those needs will not go unnoticed and unmet. In other words, the apostles' burden was to see a healthy church that would minister the word of God and minister to the needy. In fact, when the apostles say in verse 4, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The word for ministry is diakonia, from which we get the English word deacon. Again, it means to serve. How do the apostles... And how do their successors, the elders, the apostles, hand on their ministry to the elders? How do elders serve the church? How do elders serve the community? By preaching the word of God. By praying for the people. By caring for their souls. That's an area of service that God has given specifically to the elders. To fulfill the mission of the church of discipling the world. And if we don't pursue that mission, we have no purpose. Other people can do charitable works, but they can't do the ministry of the word. But having said that, at the same time, side by side, if the church ignores its ministry to the poor and needy, starting within, but also working out, then we are deficient and disobedient. So our care for the poor and needy is an essential fruit of our belief in the gospel. You know that long discussion in James 2 that we read from it today for our prayer of confession? James 2 is all about what theologically, 
Works prove faith. You can't say I believe and have no works to prove it. That, that's what that passage is all about theologically. But how does that whole discussion begin? What, what gets James to that point? He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And verse 6 reads, you have dishonored the poor. And verse 8 repeats that command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the discussion that funnels to the necessity of works. What works does James have in mind that show the legitimacy of our faith? Deeds of love and mercy. And so the message of our church is not, hey, come here, get your soul saved, go somewhere else for material help, go somewhere else for communion and fellowship. We see Jesus doing both, preaching the gospel and healing people's bodies. And he tells us in Luke 14, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So that's the solution that they find. And let's see how it works itself out in the rest of our story. The apostles commit this ministry to these seven men. And we identify these seven men as the first deacons. Now, why do we do that? Because if you reread the passage, you'll actually notice we don't have the word deacon directly applied to these men. Well, as I said, in this chapter, you do see two kinds of service. So verse 4 refers to the ministry or the service, the deaconing, I guess we could say, of the word. In verse 1, Luke refers to the daily distribution of food. Interestingly, distribution is the same word, diakonia, so the daily service of food. So you have a service of the word overseen by the apostles. And you have the service of food overseen by these seven men. When you get to a letter like Philippians 1, Paul greets the church at Philippi and he refers to the overseers and deacons. So overseer, which by the way is interchangeable with the word elder, and deacon. So if you were just to read through the book of Acts, and this is just basically a one-sentence summary. The apostles hand on their ministry to the elders. As that special group dies and passes away, their ministry of the word and overseeing the church is committed to the elders. What you don't ever find in the book of Acts is that official use of the word deacon. But what you do have are these seven men. They serve alongside the twelve. So when you get to Philippian and Paul is talking about elders and deacons, I think that's the natural culmination of what we see here in Acts. The apostles hand on their ministry to the elders, and these seven become the office of deacon. And one other thing to note is in 1 Timothy 3, Paul also refers to two offices in the church, the elder or the bishop or the overseer, again, interchangeable words, and deacons. Paul speaks to both. Elders must be able to teach. There's a job description that matches what we see of the apostles. Interestingly, in 1 Timothy, 
deacons are never given a job description. We're, we're actually not told what it is they do. We, we see their qualities, not their job. Well, where do they get their job from? I would say Act 6. That's where the office was created. And so here's what I want us to look at in conclusion. The qualifications for the servants. We've seen a problem. We've seen a beautiful solution. And now let's look at the servants. Who does God give us to meet these needs and to bear witness to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ? The apostles say in verse 3, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And Stephen, one of the seven selected, he's also described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Let me just highlight three qualifications. First, the overarching qualification is that these are godly men. They are full of faith, full of the Spirit, verses 3 and 5. We ask our deacons to do certain jobs, jobs that just require skill and wisdom, and God's given us some really gifted ones. We're really thankful for that. But at the beginning is not, hey, how good are you with numbers in buildings? The first qualification is, are you full of faith in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the new birth? And do you show it in your everyday life? Are you free from hypocrisy? And not only that, are you not immature, but rather mature in the Christian faith? We need deacons who are godly, spiritual men. That's why we take time to train them in our church's doctrines. You may say, well, you don't need to know all that theology in order to balance a budget and, and organize a work day or, or oversee a renovation project. No, maybe not, but we want those decisions filtered through God's truth. We want those decisions made by people who know what God says and what he cares about so that the kind of decisions they make reflect what God cares about and can further God's mission in God's church. In Romans 15.8 we read, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. And guess what word that is in Greek? It's deacon. Jesus is a servant. Jesus is a deacon. And so God gives us deacons that will show us what Jesus is like, particularly in the area of mercy and Service. Two deacons are trustworthy. Verse three says, choose seven men who are known to be full of the Spirit. I like the structure here of the ESV. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. So men who are known to be full of the Spirit, men who are well known, men who have a good reputation, and that reputation is they are full of the Spirit and wisdom. First Timothy 3 says they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. We want to make sure they're the genuine article, that they're trustworthy and therefore permitted to serve. And again, why? Why make it so hard? I mean, just find someone. we got to have deacons. No, the ministry God has given them is so important. We can't risk it being overseen by those who are not spiritual and trustworthy. We don't want that ministry in any way 
to fall through the cracks. It's not like, hey, elders, you guys do the big stuff. Deacons, you just kind of keep the books, and maybe one day you can step up to elder. No, we've got two big jobs to do in the church. And we need men who are qualified to do that, to lead and serve in those ways. So thirdly, deacons are wise. Verse 3, full of the Spirit and wisdom. It takes a lot of wisdom to oversee mercy ministries, to oversee the life of the church, to oversee the areas like budget and care of the grounds and the property. We, we need the gifts of administration, helps, and service. And every church, including ours, has limited means, limited resources. And even with six deacons, oh wow, what a blessing to have six deacons. That's still just, at the end of the day, six men. Men that have a limited time and abilities, who have other responsibilities. They will need God's wisdom to know how to meet the needs of the church, what to focus on, and how to do that well. And so we pray that God gives them that wisdom to meet those needs. And I just want to end by, this isn't a fourth qualification, but just notice how this brings our story back to where it began. Look at the names of the men chosen to be the first deacons. Verse 5, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Do you know what all of those names have in common? They're all Greek. Every one of the original deacons had a Greek name. Now, it doesn't mean that they were all Greek-speaking. It doesn't mean it was all these Hellenistic Jews. But it was probably people who were close to that group and shared some overlap with that group, and so they would be sensitive and sympathetic to their cause. The congregation chose the men that could best represent those neglected in order to meet this vital need. One of these men is even described as a convert to Judaism. So he's a Gentile by birth. So the outsiders get a chance to oversee the vital ministry of the church. And how then does the story end? Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You know, it's it's God's kindness that when they met this need this way, God blessed the work of the church. The apostles did their work of preaching and praying. The seven did their work of showing the fruit of the gospel and ministering to those in need and the church flourished. And so we pray that God might be so gracious to us and give us a similar blessing. So let's pray and then we'll sing our hymn and move into our time of ordination. Father in heaven, we do thank you for pouring out on us your kindness. Thank you for giving us deacons. Thank you that we have the number of deacons we do in this church. I thank you for the elders that you've given us. And I just pray for both groups your special blessing as they seek to do your work. Give us wisdom. Give us godliness. Help us to persevere in this work. Help us as a congregation to partner with these groups 
and serving with them to, to meet needs as you gift the congregation and to support the work of the leaders you've given and to enable them to do their work. And would you be pleased to pour us, pour out on us a blessing, spiritual abundance in our church? We, we've seen it and we're thankful and we pray that we might continue to see unbelievers coming to know you, people growing in grace, mercy ministries met here within our walls and outside as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.